0: We're gonna start the show in a place where not a lot of people go, a coal plant on its last day. That's where Patty Poppy found herself four years ago, at the edge of Lake Erie in southeastern Michigan. Yeah, that's a day I'll never forget. After 67 years, the last coal train had just arrived at the Whiting Coal Fire Power Plant. And as a senior VP of the utility that ran that plant, Patty was there to pay her respects. We went down into the control room Uh, for the final moments,
1: and uh, it was a little bit, and I'm not being dramatic here, Uh, it it was a little bit like a hospital room uh, in kind of an end-of-life moment, where the alarms one-by-one came in, and uh, one-by-one the senior shift uh, supervisor and the senior operator um, disabled the alarms. And uh, there, I'm going to tell you, was not a dry eye in the house, Uh, it was, it was a moment.
2: Well, I didn't expect to get emotional about a coal plant today.
0: I didn't either, but you have to understand for Patty, it's personal. Her dad worked at the same utility and she grew up in the area where coal and heavy industry were central to life. Yeah, it it does not get easier, no. Now, as a leader of Michigan's biggest utility, Consumers Energy, this was the reality that she had to reckon with every day. Last year, consumers went all in on the energy transition. They're closing all of their coal plants, and they want to meet 90% of demand with renewables, batteries, and efficiency by 2040. That's a huge deal in Michigan, where coal still looms really large in the energy mix.
2: Yeah, it sounds like there'll be a lot more of those somber visits to coal towns to come, but it also sounds like there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful.
0: Yeah, there will be more of those visits, but she is hopeful and she has a sense of purpose now also.
2: On that last
1: day at every facility, it's uh, a hard, uh, it's a heart-wrenching sort of day because of the effect and the change that's happening to the people there. But, um, you know, my co-workers uh, are... are very proud, again, of what they've done, and uh, as they should be, and uh, very realistic and customer-centric to say that uh, we care about our future generations, and we care about um, uh, making sure that we can, at the end of our days, look back and say we did everything that we could uh, to protect future generations from the effects of climate change, and that just— supersedes and gives us a higher order purpose in these tough decisions. But on the day of, you can bet it's a a tough day for the people who are uh, so deeply affected by the change.
0: Going all in on a climate strategy, it was a huge transformation for Michigan's biggest utility and for Patty, too. It forced her to reckon with her roots in coal country, her assumptions about climate change and the company's approach to new market pressures. This is Illuminators, a show about the people and the forces transforming the business of energy. I'm Brad Langley. I run a marketing team at Uplight.
2: And I'm Devon Hobbs. I run a product team at Uplight. In this series, we talk with the founders, executives, and decision makers at the forefront of disruption in energy. What do their stories tell us about this crazy competitive business world we find ourselves
0: in? In this episode, we talk to Patty Poppy, the president and CEO of Consumers Energy. Patty is an industrial engineer who worked for a decade and a half in the auto industry. But for the last 15 years, she's been working in the utility business. She's done it all, power plant director, operations VP, customer experience lead, and now chief executive. Today, is leading the biggest power company in Michigan through a massive transition toward renewables and energy efficiency. And she's convinced that the transition needs to happen quickly, which is kind of remarkable because not that long ago, Patty drove around with a bumper sticker that showed off her pride in coal. Uh, I hear you have a uh, a bumper sticker or what a sticker was once on your car uh, that says "I love coal." Um, knowing how much the energy industry is is evolving, so no judgment here. Was that sticker a source of pride for you at one point?
1: Yeah, especially when I stuck it on my electric car. I thought it was fun. You know, I was proud of my coal plants and my co-workers at them and all of the benefits that they had provided and that coal had provided as a a low-cost fuel source that has, you know, powered the economy of America. But I had come to realize and learn through study and, and and. Really healthy debate inside our own company that carbon emissions were correlated to climate change, and that we had an obligation to change how we produced energy and so um, it now has a little pink sticky note, and it's stuck on my wall now uh, that says I used to uh, heart coal um, but uh, you know i um I do think that coal had its time and its place. And now we have the, the really great fortune that the economics have changed. We've got other clean and um, uh, energy technologies that can help us in ways that were not possible before. You know, our demand response programs and our smart thermostat programs and our ability for the first time ever to optimize demand is um, – a brand new horizon that we can truly deliver what we call a clean and lean system for the people that we're so blessed to serve.
2: You know, that's really a huge change in mindset. And I really admire that about Patty. It sounds like she has a pretty personal connection to coal. I'm wondering how deep does that go in her history?
0: Very Deep. Heavy industry has always been at the center of Patty's life. She grew up near Jackson, Michigan, a former industrial town where Consumers Energy was founded 136 years ago. And over that time, it was powered almost entirely by coal. Her father was actually a nuclear engineer at the utility, and he's the reason she became an industrial engineer, a career that wasn't common for young women 30 years ago. I turned down an uh,
1: acting uh, scholarship um, <laughs> to go to engineering school, which maybe I'm the only uh, person in America that that <laughs> happened to. Uh, but uh, my father really knew and believed that girls could do anything. Uh, he knew I was good at math and science and that my career aspirations or, or potential could be fulfilled with a good technical uh, education. And so uh, we got a postcard in the mail from Purdue for a women in engineering career day. And uh, I wasn't considering Purdue. And in fact, in our family, I was the seventh of seven girls. And my dad's, let me just say, last ditch effort to get an engineer out of the bunch. He had not failed uh, or he had failed six times before. So number seven was on his radar. And uh, uh, we had a family rule. You couldn't go out of state to college. And Purdue was in Indiana and I was in Michigan. But he said, uh, maybe we should go check it out. I'm like, why should we do that? And he was just willing to try anything. He said, it's a women in engineering career day. Let's go. So we drove down to Purdue that day, and I have to tell you, I met some incredible women who were funny and smart and had cute outfits, (laughs) which I didn't know was possible (laughs) to be an engineer and be all those things. And uh, as a a 17-year-old, it it had left quite an impression on me, and, and it definitely caused me to choose Purdue and engineering. And uh, when we came home with a Purdue sweatshirt, um, my mother knew the the rules of the game had just changed. (laughs) And we had a new program in
0: town. After school, Patty started working at General Motors. She eventually started managing assembly plants. And it was there that she met a mentor who helped shape her style as a leader and eventually as a CEO. So, the early part of your career, you spent several years working at General Motors. Um, I think at that time you had a mentor by the name of Herb Stone, and he instilled some career advice in you. This idea of good leaders walk around. Uh, talk a little bit about Herb and this advice he gave you, and the impact it's had on you.
1: You know, I I look back, and he was so instrumental in my career. There's so many points in my career where somebody saw something in me I had not yet seen in myself, and and he saw some potential in me, and um, I worshipped this guy. He was so good. Our plant had not been running well before he came, and and he came and he sort of cleaned up shop, put the right leaders in place, created this uh, culture of results and focus and walking around, that leaders uh, put their eyes on the work and leaders walk around and lead by um, – uh, really being close to the action. And I can't tell you how many times he'd come back from a walk around the shop and he'd tell something to a manager that the manager didn't even know was happening in their own department. (laughs) And so uh, he really taught the power of being visible and really putting your eyes on how the work happens. And so for me in my career, that has uh, definitely been something I've carried through and carried on. And uh, when I joined... um, the utility and was running power plants. I spent a lot of time you know on the on the turbine deck and in the control room and out on the coal pile and really learning how the work got done by the people who actually do the work that creates the value that our customers rely on and and it's um over and over again been proven to me that that's how you really can see the opportunities that exist, the gaps that exist between your aspiration for the business and how it is today, and uh, just so powerful to be grounded in the truth of what's happening versus the filtered truth that comes through levels of management and what people want you to
0: believe when you're the leader. It was also at General Motors that you learned about something called lean manufacturing, and you eventually brought this philosophy to consumers. For somebody that knows nothing about factories, what does lean manufacturing mean? And what was the process of learning how to use it on the job?
1: Well, lean fundamentally, of course, is born out of uh, the Toyota production system back, you know, early parts of the century, last century. Uh, But um, it really is about high quality at the lowest cost. And uh, The belief that you can have those two things simultaneously. And it's been pretty transformative for us here. But the way I learned uh, on the job back then, a very important learning, I had actually an opportunity to travel all over the world with General Motors, uh, with an international team, learning about lean, both from General Motors people, but more importantly, companies that were very far along and mature in their lean journey uh, around the globe. And... um, Really, learning that the techniques people often talk about—Lean tools and techniques—you'll hear things like Kaizen or Six. Well, Six Sigma is a a parallel path to Lean, but you'll hear uh, Kaizen, you'll hear 5S, you'll hear Standard Work, and a lot of companies get lost in the tools. And what I learned on that trip around the world was that the heart of Lean is actually a core set of principles. Uh, And those principles are about open communication, uh, problem-solving, frontline employees being able to own their work and design their work and make decisions uh, at the point of activity. Uh, And it's had a transformative effect on how we can actually deliver for customers more reliably, more on time, more safely, and do it for lower cost.
2: So how did Patty first get into the power business?
0: Yeah, it's actually kind of a wild story. It was the mid-2000s. She and her husband had both been at GM for about 15 years, and this opportunity came up to work at a GM plant in Korea, and they took it. That is until Patty got a call from someone at the Detroit utility DTE.
1: Well, we were only home for uh, about two weeks while our stuff was literally on a boat on its way to Korea. We had a house, we had the schools, all that was done. We were, um, I was, offered a job to go to DTE, and we literally had a day to decide um, before we left. And we took a big leap of faith. We... um, it was, this was not like good career planning.
0: So what was that conversation like with the higher ups at GM? I mean, you're stuffing a boat to Korea and <laughs> you come back and tell them, sorry, I'm not going. Uh, how, how'd that go?
1: Well, I have a couple beads of sweat on my forehead, just remembering it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was tough. Look, I, th- I considered myself like I bled blue for general motors. I loved the company. I loved my leaders. I probably was on some like, secret list of least likely to ever leave. I was so loyal, so I certainly don't regret the decision. But it was very hard to disappoint people who had been so supportive of me. And the great news is General Motors is one of our most valued customers. They're, we get to serve them here. I understand their business. I understand their language so we can serve them better. And so it's turned out I, I hope the GM team thinks it's been a beneficial outcome for them in the long run. But it definitely was uh, pretty tough.
0: So tell me, what was it like to transition from manufacturing Cadillacs to running power plants?
1: Well, I do remember the first day I got to a power plant, I'm like, where are all the people? (laughs) An auto
0: assembly plant (laughs) has a lot more
1: people. Uh, But I found them. They're out doing rounds and out uh, moving coal on the coal pile and maintaining pumps and equipment. They're there. They're just not uh, always visible. And so that was a big, you know, in this kind of leadership lesson of – Um, managed by walking around, Um, I had to walk a lot of distance (laughs) to see where everyone was. And uh, so that was interesting. And making uh, the status of the plant more visible, uh, realizing that some of the lean techniques that I had learned in this competitive automotive industry were actually going to parlay well to the utility industry, took some time, you know, to translate. I, I felt there were times I was speaking French In an English speaking uh, location, you know, lean being French, um, like people just did not know what I was saying. And so, learning enough about the business to be able to translate what I knew the value proposition could be uh, really took some doing. And so, I was very uh, blessed to have five years running power plants, uh, really, you know, boots on the ground to understand what the potential and opportunity is to deploy lean in uh, an environment where lean had not really been uh, deployed effectively in any meaningful way. And and it's been really fun. I was a great way to learn and meet our industry. Uh, I'll never um, regret having those five years at those plants.
0: Patty left DTE and went to Consumers Energy in 2011. While there, she touched every area of the business, engineering, maintenance, billing. She ran the customer experience team and then distribution and transmission operations. And now, of course, she runs the whole company. Patty carried the principles of lean manufacturing to those teams in the early years. But it wasn't always easy. She often had to prove her ideas to skeptical workers on the front lines. But she'd been on the front lines for decades, so she knew exactly how to handle it. You mentioned you were speaking French in an English-speaking uh, area trying to get people to understand lean manufacturing. Uh, can you think of any examples of conversations you had where that crystallized for you and you just struggled to convey the benefit of this, this new approach?
1: I definitely can think of a time. I remember being up in the control room at one of the plants, and I had asked the manager, um, I'm like, look, what's a critical metric? I just want to show you the power of visualization and, and visual management. Just give me one metric that's really powerful. It says furnace exit gas temperatures. I'm like, okay, great. Let's chart it. We're going to put a chart on the wall. We're going to have red, yellow, green zone on the chart. It's going to be a line chart. And each shift is just going to take a marker, make a mark on the chart, and tell us what the furnace exit gas temperature was that day and if they took action because they were in the red, yellow, or green zone. They, they were like rolling their eyes. This is the stupidest thing we've ever done. Please, lady, go put your energy somewhere else. (laughs) Well, something funny happened with that little chart on the wall. Uh, We discovered that first shift and second shift had different uh, uh, operating expectations and standards for what limit they would take action. Uh, What was yellow and what was red was different shift to shift. And they didn't know that till they hung that darn chart up on the wall and had to mark what was yellow and what was red. And uh, it was a huge eye-opener. I mean, just a huge eye-opener. I think they'd even deny that this actually happened today because (laughs) they think differently about it. But at the time, it was just such an early introduction to the power of visualizing our performance. And now I walk... um, Uh, Around our company here at every location, we have visual management that is owned by the operators. It is owned by the people closest to the work. They monitor and manage their performance where the work is happening and make visible their trends, their improvements, their gaps. And as adults, we are visual learners. If one person has it in a computer and everyone has to wait for a report to be printed out for everyone to know how we did today you've completely lost the hearts and the minds of the people closest to the work. You've got to be able to see our progress and 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 know that the actions that we're taking are yielding positive or negative outcomes. And uh, it's just been very powerful. I, I'm I'm a total believer, and I've seen it over and over and over and over again. But I just remember that first time they're like, oh, my gosh, lady, please, this is ridiculous. And it turned out that it wasn't so ridiculous after all.
0: So... Those kinds of insights and that kind of approach ultimately takes you to consumer's energy, where um, if we fast forward to 2016, I believe it was then you were promoted to CEO, um, and if I'm not mistaken, the first woman CEO of of consumers. So uh, take me to your first day or your first few weeks in the job. How are you feeling? Um, What did you do? You know, um, it's
1: funny that you asked that question. Uh, Those first weeks and months, um, everyone warned me it's a huge change you're it, you're you're going to be stunned by how different it I'm thinking that, no 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 i've been here i know the people i know the operations it's not going to be that different well i turned into that girl in the frozen movie you know who points at things and everything freezes over <laughs> <laughs> I, I realized that my ideas were now embraced more wholeheartedly <laughs> and executed immediately which uh I had uh, never had that experience before. And so uh, I had to really learn to keep my hands in my pockets, you know, only point when you really have thought it through and really want something to happen. But uh, I don't think I quite knew the power of that, that
0: pointing right off the bat. And that brings us to one of the biggest decisions she's ever had to make.
2: Oh, to shut down those coal plants.
0: Yes, exactly. But it wasn't just a decision to shutter a bunch of old power plants. Embracing the energy transition was about reforming the way consumers makes long-term decisions. And it also meant Patty had to question her own assumptions about climate change and renewables.
1: I I bought into sort of the uh, denier um, uh, uh, mantra that, you know, it's alarmist, it's extremist, there's no causation, there may be correlation, but, you know, the statistics are not on the side. But then when we actually had the debates internally, when we actually did our homework, when we actually studied um, uh, the the scientific community's work and, and really looked at the results of the studies objectively um, and quite – constructively, we really came to terms with um, the, the overwhelming evidence of the science and that we could no longer just kind of st- stick our heads in the sand and, and live in this um, sort of world of denial without a basis. And, and so we really, we've, we've made a big uh, transition here. And the, and the great news is we don't have to, you know, we used to have the sucker's choice you can have clean energy. It's just going to be expensive, or you can have the cheap and dirty stuff. You know, take your pick. We sold that story for a long time, and the reality is we don't have to make that sucker's choice anymore. We can choose to have clean and affordable energy that's abundant and reliable and create new economic and opportunities for prosperity for the people that we serve. And it's so there's no trade-off anymore. I don't feel like there's a downside. To being for clean energy,
0: what did these debates within consumers look like as you're weighing the impact of coal and and such on climate change? Uh, can you take us through that that process for um, how you came to a decision that this was in fact the right and only way to go?
1: Yeah, you know, it was a series of conversations. Um, it's one of the things I love about our culture is that we can have healthy debate, and uh, we are data-driven. We tell ourselves that, and when we were really honest with ourselves, we actually weren't using data to argue our points. Um, and so when we actually brought the data and let it speak to us um, and let our experts and both sides of the issue, we brought kind of contrarians and uh, believers uh, to the table um, it really uh, it it left us I think people felt free and safe for the first time to say what they really believed about it and and we could really come to a place that we could all agree uh, on how to move forward. and it was healthy I th- and I can tell you it was not a rubber stamp. It was healthy and robust, and it again, is one of the things that I have great pride about our uh, culture here that. It's sort of one of the cultures of lean, one of these kind of overriding principles is that you've got um, a willingness to make problems visible. And open communication means that you have to be able to have healthy debate about the best path forward or debate about what the data are really telling us. Um, That is part of what makes a lean operating uh, system work, and it definitely helped us get on this path to clean and lean Uh, for our energy supply.
0: Now, how about selling that vision externally? There's been uh, instances of utilities coming out with anti-renewable messaging um, that they've had to now kind of go and revert back on and say, no, this is in fact good for the environment, this type of approach. Um, Are there any moments where you've had to overcome those misperceptions uh, externally or any best practices in terms of how to message this to the community that you serve in Michigan?
1: You know, I, I suppose I might um, suggest that some of the hardest critics are inside the industry, you know, that um, uh, we, we've relied on physics for a long time, and it's hard to say to ourselves we're going to believe in a future that's never been true before. And it takes real um, a commitment and tenacity to, to stay true to a future that you're creating uh, that isn't true today that um, has been a challenge for us, I would say. Um, There's a lot of believers. Don't get me wrong. We get a lot of uh, positive uh, response um, from some very technical, very competent (laughs) physicists. But, you know, there's – uh, the quick answer for people are, you know, is that whole adage that clean energy is more expensive and it's not as reliable, and, and we're just unwilling to accept the previous barriers because technology has changed. There's new uh, tools and techniques that are uh, ready. Prices have improved. And so it's been really interesting for me to find that our biggest de- detractors, um, I sometimes say, are the people who know too much, uh, that it's hard to believe and any great innovator has faced that disbelief you know um, in the creation of the automobile nobody thought that uh, it, it was possible for every you know person to have a car uh, that would be reliable but it was true because there was a handful of innovators who committed to a future that wasn't True at the time. You know, you think when Bill Gates said every person will have a, a, a home computer, and I remember everybody thinking, well, what do we need that for? Now, heck, we walk around with a computer in our pocket. We can't leave home without it. And so I just think in the face of great innovation comes some uh, natural disbelief, people who would prefer to believe it when they see it, uh, but leaders. Um, Uh, believe it, and then they cause it to be seen.
2: All right. You know, executives love the opportunity to talk about these grand visions for the future and all of that. But these are hard decisions. What about decisions that might put some people out of work?
0: Yeah, it's an important question. And it actually brings us to the moment we heard at the top of the show. As these coal plants start closing, Patty needs to be out front with big ideas, but she also needs to be sympathetic to the people being affected by it. She almost has to be a grief counselor and a job counselor at the same time. So you've come to this strategy of clean and lean and now comes a difficult task of executing it and one of those hard things you have to start doing is shutting down those coal plants. Um, I think it was right around the time you became the CEO of consumers that it was time to shut down one of those coal plants. Um, and I think you ultimately went and saw the workers there at that plant, um, as that happened. Can you talk about that story?
1: Yeah, that's a day I'll never forget. You know, uh, somebody sent me a picture the night before, uh, of the last coal train being delivered to our wet plant. And, um, uh, or our whiting plant down in Luna Pier, Michigan. And uh, they knew I would care. Like, they knew that would matter to me. And I was just like, it just struck my heart. And I thought, okay, wait wait a minute. I don't know what's on my calendar tomorrow, but I'm not doing that. I'm going to whiting. And so uh, I hopped in my car and drove down and uh, got there. And, and I wasn't sure what I was going to find. I was not sure what the mood of my coworkers was going to be on that day. It was the last day of operation at a plant that, incidentally, was on a record run. Is actually now in the history books of having had the longest one of the longest consecutive runs of all power plants um, in the history of the country. Uh, they were on that run on that day. We shut them down. You know, in the midst of a record run. Uh, I wasn't sure what we were going to find, what I was going to find. And um, my coworkers were not angry. They were proud. They knew that they had uh, fulfilled their duty. I asked, we kind of gathered in the cafeteria. There's maybe about 50 of us there on that last day. And and I asked the group, how many of you are retiring tomorrow? And about half the room raised their hand. And and what that told me is they had organized their lives around that day. They had organized their lives around fulfilling their obligation and their duty to serve the people of Michigan. Um, They were proud of what they had done. um, And they were thankful that the company was working with them to make sure they were prepared for that retirement. The rest
0: of the group all had assignments
1: somewhere else in the company.
0: And it's very commendable that you're able to find jobs for the people that want to stay in the industry. I got to think that it's tough as well to to be retrained or to teach a new set of, of skills to people that are so used to doing something one way. Um, can you talk through the programs or processes you have in place to retrain your workforce, to be more focused on renewables um, and clean energy rather than coal?
1: Well, the good news is we have, you know... Um, uh, a lot of uh, options across the company, not just in energy production. So our distribution system um, is increasingly um, intelligent. It's certainly increasing. It's large. It uh, needs uh It's increasingly demanding of uh, work and uh, repair and uh, rebuilding. And so a lot of the skills that uh, our power plant folks uh, have and have gained over their careers are applicable in other parts of the electric business, not just in in power supply. And and as we all know, there's significantly less jobs in – uh, wind production or solar production, but there's lots of jobs um, in our electric distribution business, and with our, uh, you know, our, the age of our workforce, we have uh, just increasing demand for talented uh, team players who are part of the consumer's family. And so, because we, that's part of the reason for the timing of the plan, that we can't close all the plants tomorrow because we have to actually transition and prepare both the people and we have to prepare the um, communities and the effect that the closure of those plants has on the tax base and the local schools, and we have to prepare the replacement energy supply uh, in the form of uh, my favorite version of energy waste reduction and demand response, actually utilizing technology To optimize demand for the first time, so that we don't have to build anything to replace the power plants, and so um, I just think the timing uh, is truly driven by certainly preparing our coworkers, giving them lots of advance notice so that they can be reskilled, but also other aspects of this transition needs time to make happen.
0: I know the energy efficiency is is a big focus at consumers, which means people using less of your product. Um, How much of a shift is that in thinking for a large utility?
1: The idea that a utility would inspire our customers to use less of our product um, is counterintuitive. And I remember when we first started our energy efficiency programs in 2009, uh, how much resistance there was inside the company, and particularly from the the top floor. But uh, over time, we have learned, and now it's actually materializing, that as we do reduce usage, people save money. I say all the time. They also save the planet. The cleanest kilowatt is the one they never use. And it helps us to right size our system as we are retiring plants. So we have a large purchase power agreement that comes offline here in a couple of years. And we will, it's 800 megawatt plant that's going to close and we are not going to build anything to replace it because of energy efficiency. The, the, the value is being realized as we speak. And so our goal through energy waste reduction, both energy efficiency and, of course, optimizing demand and demand response is to prevent building a total of three power plants as we're retiring our old coal units. And um, that's awesome. And the economics can work because we can right-size the fixed costs that are associated with the variable demand.
0: Was there... Was there a certain moment that you were convinced that using less was the way to go? Was there any internal wrestling or internal debates about that as a go-forward direction? You know, it's funny.
1: I think my um,
0: uh, background
1: and training in lean and industrial engineering uh, made it very obvious to me that eliminating waste was always a good thing. And so there was no – I never took convincing. It always uh, was good. And frankly, here in Michigan, we've got a great regulatory construct specifically on energy efficiency that motivates and incentivizes the utility to do the right thing that's both in the best interest of the customer who participates in the energy efficiency program and all customers in that all customers are not now paying for the new plants. And so um, it it has proven itself out. The the philosophy, the concept here in Michigan has actually materialized in real savings uh, for people uh, broadly and then specifically the people who participate. So the math works, and uh, I think that's a good thing.
2: You know, this whole story and the way Patty approached these issues, it really epitomizes the whole series. We've been talking about these through all the episodes in Illuminators. We talked about her willingness to be open, about managing tough changes, breaking inertia around company culture and the way we used to do things, even overcoming some of her own biases. You know, a lot of executives in Patty's shoes, they might not be so open about all of those things, and some might not even see it
0: or want to see it. That is exactly right. It also comes back to Patty's sense of obligation. As you can tell and rightly called out, she feels a sense of obligation for the people in coal who've built consumers' energy. But she also has to be conscious of future customers and employees and everyone else who will live with the consequences of her decisions. I have heard you talk about uh, over the next few years, we could either make the error of a generation or create the opportunity of a generation. Can you elaborate on that? I do believe that we have
1: this unique window in time. And if we do not seize it, we will have missed uh, the opportunity of a generation. With our plants closing, we have a decision to make. With what do we replace them? That is the decision to be made. And uh, by using energy waste reduction, by using demand response, by uh, adding new, clean, renewable energy in the mix uh, as we close those plants, we will forever prevent building uh, more
0: fixed cost into the system. Thinking back to that uh, I Love Coal bumper sticker and your lifetime connection to energy, uh, that sticker used to be on your car, but now it's on your wall. Um, How have you personally changed between those two points in your life?
1: I think... um, The idea that I can lead a company that has an actual effect on one of the biggest challenges the world faces is so inspiring to me. And I I tell myself, I imagine this day that I'm out in my garden uh, with my granddaughter who... Incidentally, my daughters aren't even dating people, so they hate it when I tell this story. But someday I am going to have a granddaughter, and someday she and I are going to be in the garden together. And uh, on that day, I imagine her looking up at me and saying, you know, Nana, what uh, is climate change? And I'm going to be able to look at her and say, that is something that we fixed a long time ago.
0: I hope you're right. That's that's pretty inspiring to me. That gets me up every day, you know. Awesome. Patty, thank you so much for the time you've given us today. Thank you again for your time. Thank you, Brad. Great to be with you. Patty Poppy is the CEO of Consumers Energy.
2: Illuminators is a podcast from Uplight, a software and analytics leader changing the way the world uses energy. If you like the show, please support us by subscribing, and then send out the word on social media or rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can find out more at Uplight.com slash Illuminators.
0: Illuminators is produced by PostScript Audio in collaboration with Uplight. Stephen Lacey and Daniel Waldorf are our producers. Theme music is composed by Title Card Music and Sound. I'm Brad Langley.
2: And I'm Devon Hobbs. This is Illuminators, a show about the people and the forces transforming the business of energy.